0: To learn more about code, visit codehealth.com, that's K O D E health.com, or email code directly at partnerships at codehealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. I hope you've had an opportunity to participate in our recent virtual conference sessions and webinars. Some of the best and brightest in the industry have been with us to talk about the latest rules, trends, and challenges around COVID-19. One of those sessions was presented by Lucy Zielinski from Lumina Health. And today, she and her colleague, Dan Marino, joined me to discuss some of the questions she got about the topic of telehealth. Later, Christopher Dunkerley from our sponsor, TriMedics, will talk about his vision for better clinical asset management. But first, Let's go beyond the news to learn more about the latest developments.
1: This is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us once again on Beyond the News, the segment of the podcast where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. So today we're going to take a quick look at the April 30th interim final rule which provided further uh, relaxation of Medicare regulations to allow providers to better respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, among those provisions, Chad, I wanted to check with you how significant was CMS waiving limitations on the types of clinical practitioners that can furnish Medicare telehealth services?
2: You know, that was was huge because one of the frustrations that many of our members have expressed to me and certainly for anyone who's been participating in the CMS office hours conversations related to COVID on Tuesdays and Thursdays have heard, a lot of health systems, hospitals are still providing speech therapy, occupational therapy, speech language therapy, but they haven't, you know, because of the the initial interim final rule, it, they didn't sort of expand the pool of, of clinicians who could bill for telehealth services. And so what... I understand and many health systems have said to me is that they've continued to provide these services because the patients needed them and they were just sort of hoping that CMS would provide the flexibility on the back end to actually provide some level of reimbursement for these services. And so, you know, this is one of the ways that CMS has responded to the industry, has increased flexibility to help sort of support providers during this time by allowing these services that patients certainly need. And if we don't provide it to patients, they're not going to recover appropriately. They're not going to get better, particularly for older Medicare beneficiaries. And so, you know, I, I would say this was a huge and necessary win for for hospitals and health systems. And
1: uh, another part of the CMS rule was its decision to not reduce Medicare payments for teaching hospitals that shift their residents to other hospitals in order to meet COVID-related needs, or to penalize hospitals without teaching programs that accept these residents. And so, again, how how significant is is that? That was significant in sort of helping sort of keep
2: GME funding steady. I think even a a bigger part of that was CMS's decision in the in, in the rule to not require hospitals that have expanded capacity through increasing the number of beds that they've got to on a temporary basis. So CMS isn't requiring hospitals to include those temporary beds in the bed count that's used in the in the calculation of the the IME ratio. And so that way, you know, teaching hospitals, particularly those in New York that have have flex capacity to respond to the the crisis in that area, won't be penalized for for having responded to the needs and served their community. And in particular, for some of the hospitals in New York, those are
1: those are significant dollars. Right, I see. And uh, again, uh, maybe somewhat related to the, the first provision we had talked about, but I wanted to uh, check on the significance of CMS allowing hospitals to bill for services furnished remotely by hospital-based practitioners to Medicare patients registered as hospital outpatients, including when the patient is at home, uh, when the home is serving as a temporary provider-based department of the hospital.
2: Yeah. And so CMS really sort of, they the same flexibility that you saw through the initial waiver through the Hospitals Without Walls sort of program under that sort of umbrella or aegis, CMS has also expanded kind of the availability to provide telehealth services and even in-person inpatient services. In a variety of non-traditional sites, which would include the the patient's home, obviously. So, in the, in the instance of the home, the patient would have to still be registered as a patient in the hospital outpatient department, and then the hospital would have to file one time with their MAC to sort of state that they were expanding sort of their hospital outpatient-based departments to include patients' homes, in order to receive payment for those services from the for this basically for the facility fee for those services. And again, another another significant win for hospitals. I think just also as a footnote, you know, some of the concerns that we were hearing with CMS expanding telehealth for evaluation and management services and the whatnot, that this might be an opportunity for CMS to put additional pressure on the facility fees by not expanding and allowing sort of the the home to be considered a hospital outpatient department setting as part of the emergency this sort of starts to kind of walk back that concern because once you start paying for a service
1: in a given setting, it becomes much harder to kind of reel that back. Right. I see. Well, uh, again, a fast moving and multifaceted national challenge uh, with a lot of financial implications for hospitals. So thanks a lot for the, uh, for the insights today, Chad. Hey, my pleasure, Rich. Certainly thank you for all the good work you're doing, keeping our members abreast of things going on in DC. Stay safe. Hey, thanks. You too. And uh, couldn't do it without you. So I appreciate all the expertise. And uh, of course, you, listener, can keep up the latest legal and policy developments related to the new interim final rule and other developments on our news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening.
0: If you're looking
3: to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank.
0: It's been around for a while, but in this time of social distancing, it's growing exponentially. I'm talking, of course, about telehealth. Lucy Zielinski, a managing partner at Lumina Health, held a great virtual conference session on the topic last month, and participants had so many comments and questions that I wanted to give her another chance to talk about it. Today, she's joined by another Lumina Health managing partner, Dan Marino, to talk about telehealth trends and answer some of those questions from the session. Telehealth has been discussed for years as a cost-effective alternative to in-person visits, but in this era of COVID-19, it appears that this is telehealth's day. Can you talk a little bit about this dramatic increase in telehealth use?
4: As the COVID-19 crisis started to really take shape, providers really had to begin to think about how they needed to care for the patients, both in terms of the current patients and their chronic diseases, as well as some of the new COVID-19 patients so what they've in essence done is really turn to telehealth as a strong alternative to connect with the patients really satisfy or or treat their needs as well as then beginning to think about then how they could maintain a lot of their economic and, and revenue activities that exist within the practices
5: and Dan what I've seen is that uh Mainly primary care physicians are really adopting telehealth at a rapid rate. You know, typically in the past, I think it was probably less than 5% or so that used telehealth. And now I'm seeing just about every single primary care physician using telehealth. And what I'm hearing is that about 25% of the telehealth visits are related to, to COVID type symptoms. Whereas 75% of their patients are their typical routine follow-ups or, you know, urgent care that aren't related to COVID. They're also seeing not only established patients, but new patients as well.
0: So when an organization wants to move to telehealth visits, as many do right now, it's not just flip a switch and do something different. What major changes in operations are required?
5: I would love for that to be that easy, right, to flip a switch, the key is really to workflow out that telehealth visit. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts, and not everybody is in the same location. You know, the office staff and the physician, they're in multiple locations. So what I'm hearing is that many of the office staffs are usually using platforms to communicate. They could be using a group text to make it simple. Others are using platforms like Microsoft Teams or, or others. And once you have that ability to communicate between the physician and the providers, you have to consider, obviously, some of the changes with the patient workflow and of the visit. So before the visit, the office staff really needs to do a more detailed intake process with the patient, ensuring that that necessary time is allotted for that visit. You really can't be late for for telehealth visits if you think about it. Typically, I've seen telehealth visits with 15 or like 30-minute increments, depending on the condition and whether the patient is newer established. And sometimes the slots may be longer, especially if a physician is just getting started and, and needs to ramp up. Yeah, I agree with you, Lucy. And just to
4: build on that, the preparation that really should go into at least the first telehealth visit with the patient is really important. For a lot of patients, this is new. And in particular, for the Medicare patients, they may not necessarily be familiar with telehealth technology. So what we've found is the practices that have actually focused on the pre-visit activity, even testing the technology with the patients in some type of a a five-minute pre-visit meeting, if you will, has really gone a long way towards creating a lot of efficiencies with the physician. And with that patient. So, as Lucy said, it allows that physician to maintain their schedule, to be on time, and plus it really creates a, a real positive experience with the patient.
5: And Dan, to add to that too, one of the other things too that's key is providing an informed consent to the patient before the visit. That in fact, it will be a televisit and ensuring that the patient understands that there's any financial responsibility. So, I think those are some of the key points as well to consider.
0: Lucy, at our virtual conference on April 9th, you gave a really great presentation about telehealth. It seemed like you got a lot of questions from participants kind of centered around changes and confusion around codes and reimbursement. So what should medical groups know about this?
5: You're definitely right. There's a lot of confusion out there in industry because CMS has put forth some guidelines and then not every commercial payer's follow suit, right? There's there's some variance in in policies. CMS has a list of almost 200 telehealth codes and about half of these are new. So knowing what codes are applicable to that provider and specialty is definitely key. What I recommend is that groups create a crosswalk grid of their in-person visits and then determine how telehealth services can be provided for those visits. And then once they determine those codes, the CPT codes, they need to understand what modifiers and place of service to use. Not every single payer acknowledges or recognizes and pays for certain procedure codes as well as some want different modifiers, some want different place of service. So understanding what each payer requires and what that payer policy is, is is definitely important.
4: So building on what Lucy had said, I think there's one other point that I would encourage practices to consider as you're thinking about the coding specific to the commercial carrier. You should also begin to think about what's the right level of reimbursement that goes along with this as you're, you know, incorporating the telehealth visit with the right level of coding with the place of service and so forth. Although most of the commercial carriers are following the lead of CMS and have schedules very similar to the in-offices at reimbursement, not all of them are there. So what we have often see or are advising our physician groups is to really reach out to the payers to ensure that you do understand what the right level of coding is and the right level of reimbursement.
5: Yes, and you make a very good point. For example, those in-person visits, if practices historically build out a place of service 11, they should be using that same place of service to generate that non-facility rate versus an O2, which would, for Medicare patients, generate a facility reimbursement. And there's a difference.
0: Let's talk about KPIs for a minute. Uh, What are some KPIs that medical groups can track?
4: Well, when you look at telehealth visits, the key performance indicators are, are similar to those that would be for the inpatient or the in-person visits. So we would typically want to look at what the average visit time is, you know, per hour for telehealth visits as opposed to the in-person visits. And like I had said, you know, for telehealth visits, you can typically, if you're proficient, you could see them, you know, potentially four an hour. So that's one of the KPIs you would want to look at. You also would want to look at the number of visits you're doing within a day or within a block. Typically, physicians aren't going to spend a full six or eight hours at their clinic doing virtual care. You know, you may have a block of four hours. So what you want to begin to think about is, again, what are the total amount of visits that you're creating or producing within, you know, that Block of uh, a virtual visit time. I think the other thing you want to begin to look at is what is the percentage of time that's being reimbursed. Again, in in an in-person visit, Lucy can speak to this. You know, it is a little bit higher because of course you're there in person with the the patient and you have more of a comprehensive type of a a review that you're doing with the patient as opposed to what's occurring in in the virtual world. So oftentimes that's a little bit less. But if you're able to really track that, that does help to ensure that you're getting the right level of reimbursement, coding appropriately, and really making sure economically it's working for your practice.
5: Under the temporary policy, most of the payers, if not all, are reimbursing providers as if the services were furnished in person. So the reimbursement uh, per CPT code should be pretty consistent. I don't know if that's going to be the case in the future. So that's definitely something to think about just to support that. The other key performance indicator I would add is, is collections per CPT code. And then I would drill it by payer just to make sure that you are being compensated by each. CPT codes the same as as you were before, so tracking that is important. A couple other KPIs that I think groups should consider in light of the revenue cycle are their registration accuracy rate. There's many changes in the process, so in order to make sure that that is a healthy process, tracking that accurate registration rate is key. Another one would be around denial rate because some of these codes are new and different modifiers uh, are being used in place of service it's key to track the denials so that those could be worked in a timely fashion so that you can capture that reimbursement. I'm seeing some denials around telephone visits because the coding is inaccurate. Some payers pay for it. Other payers don't pay for telephone visits. So understanding, again, what uh, those policies are and using denial rate KPI can be a nice indicator to provide some insight into whether codes are being paid or not.
0: This week, and for the the benefit of the listener, we're recording on April 23rd, we're seeing news about things opening up a little bit in some areas. And I I don't think we're ready for that everywhere yet, but eventually we will find our way out of social distancing and step-by-step work our way to a new normal. And what I keep hearing about telehealth is that the toothpaste is out of the tube. We're not going back to whatever it was before. So how is this experience going to impact the future of telemedicine?
4: I think it's going to allow primary care in particular to be more, much more proactive in terms of how they're reaching and accessing patients. I think it is going to really advance and open up the access model with patients, which is definitely a good thing. I think what we're going to start to see is that through this, these new access models utilizing telehealth, it's going to allow us to even incorporate more Digital technology and digital innovation to be able to connect with the patients and have even, um, provide for even a greater clinical experience with the patients, if you will. I think the other opportunity that we have here is to leverage telehealth services in support of some of the inpatient activity that's occurring, the surgical activity that's occurring to do a lot of planning around the flow of patients and you know capacity management if you will. So I think it does provide a lot of opportunities to begin to think about how we can deliver care to the patients differently.
5: Dan just to add to that if you think about value based care, I think telehealth if, if we leverage that will definitely expand patient access and I'll tell you personally, I mean that that will increase my personal satisfaction too, especially for those minor Type of problems that, that I have to see a provider for. So I think that's one point. Um, another point is around care management as well, doing those quick check-ins with the provider, um, especially for those patients with chronic conditions. You could really enhance some of those care management functions with telehealth.
4: One immediate opportunity we see for telehealth services is that practices and hospitals can leverage telehealth services to start to think about how they can respond to the recovery activities that are occurring as they start to incorporate a lot of the new elective procedures and ramp up a lot of their elective activity within their hospitals. Telehealth services can be used to perform pre-surgical testing, pre-admission testing. Instead of bringing the patients into the office or in person, they can begin to manage a lot of that activity within a telehealth environment. It also will help them to think about how they need to manage a lot of their capacity with the patients as they start to enter within the hospital and within the practice, as well as a lot of their staffing. So a lot of opportunities for telehealth, especially in the short term, as we start to think about a lot of this phase one recovery plan that the Trump administration has provided as guidelines as of April 19. Another opportunity that we can see is ensuring that telehealth and telemedicine visits are appropriately incorporated into managed care contracting with the commercial payers. This definitely should be an area of consideration as the managed care experts are working with their payer partners to ensure the right level of reimbursement, the right level of coverage, and ensure that it's clearly defined what the payer is going to be reimbursing for as well as then what the patients would be responsible for as telehealth visits become more predominant down the road.
0: For more on this topic, I highly recommend listeners look up the virtual conference session that was given on April 9th. It's on our website and I will link to it in the show notes. Lucy Zielinski and Dan Marino, thank you so much for joining me on the Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast.
5: Thank you, Erica. It was a pleasure to be with you.
6: Hi, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. Without question, we're living in uncertain times during this COVID-19 pandemic, and the amount of information online and in your inbox must be pretty overwhelming. HFMA is helping its members make sense of it all. We've set up a special page on our website to provide members with a consolidated view of COVID-19 news coverage and its effect on healthcare finance. Visit hfma.org, click topics, then Coronavirus. We also invite you to share your thoughts and concerns with other members in HFMA's community. Although many of us are practicing social distancing, we can lean on each other during this challenging time. This is a time to band together and the entire HFMA staff is here to support you. In addition, I and the CEOs of ACHE, AMGA, MGMA, AAPL, and NAHQ have collaborated to sync up our resources. We're providing you the best resources we have available right now collectively to help you manage the evolving nature of COVID-19. We encourage you to visit the sites and there'll be links on each other's sites on our websites and use the information free of charge. We will be updating resources as we learn more. By working together, we will be better armed to advance the health and fulfill the missions that founded our great organizations. We're here for you. Let me end by thanking you for all that you do for your organization, for HFMA, and the healthcare industry at large. Thank you.
0: One of the most disturbing topics in the news over the past few months was the availability of ventilators and the tough decisions hospitals were preparing to make should they find themselves short on equipment. And although there has been some discussion in the past few weeks about the efficacy of ventilators, my next guest tells me the issue around availability is one hospitals should be paying close attention to, not just for ventilators, but for all clinical assets. Christopher Dunkerley, the CFO at Trimedics, says preparing for future waves of COVID-19, not to mention future pandemics or other catastrophes, presents bigger clinical asset management challenges than hospitals have ever seen. COVID-19 has brought unique financial challenges to hospitals and health systems, one of them being clinical asset management. Can you tell me a little bit about the challenges that healthcare organizations are facing right now?
3: Uh, With all clinical assets... I think there's always been a challenge when we think about having, you know, the assets. If you think about assets and, you know, you want to answer the following questions. How many assets do I have? How many do I need and prove it? I think, you know, there's been room for improvement, shall we say, in the industry even before COVID-19 came along. Uh, The question now is what dynamic has that changed? Because in the past, hospitals were kind of dealing with sort of normal peaks and troughs if you will, on demand and supply of their services, but now any future demands, and anything in the future is going to be, well, how do I prepare from an asset standpoint for the peaks and troughs to be higher and lower than they've ever been before? And how do we prepare ourselves for that? And how does that affect our financial situation? I think if you look at it overall, I mean, from, from from our standpoint at, at Trimedics with the customers that we have, and really across the industry as a whole, you tend to see that assets are utilised between 40 and 50%. Clearly, that will have changed during COVID, and there will have been, you know, with the with the challenges on elective procedures and you know the need for ventilators, you know, there's there's going to be peaks and troughs in, in that. And how hospitals manage that and, and cope with that going forward, I think, is going to be a unique challenge. I think the country and the industry as a whole is going to have to, to think about that. But it's still not going to detract from the original question of how much equipment do I have, how much do I need, and prove it. And you know, with now, just like I say, there's there's going to be much greater fluctuations there's going to be expectations to be managed and, and costs factored into how we deal with it.
0: How do we plan for clinical asset management both in the short term and in the long term? Because I think those answers might be different.
3: Yeah, I think in the short term, again, when we were working with our, our customers, you know, first of all, it was trying to get people aware of, of the utilization. I mean, the, the need for equipment is often an, an emotional one. People like the the, the safety net People like to know that equipment is there should they need it. And the problem with doing that is there's always a cost associated with it if you want to keep the equipment compliant up to regulatory standards and you're not putting patient safety at risk because you're using equipment that's not kind of certified and fit for purpose it depends what you mean by short term if you mean the next six months obviously there's going to be a lot of reimbursement and refiguring out of of business models that that are yet still patently unclear and I don't know how you would apportion any of reimbursements to any one specific area Um, I'm not even sure that anybody really understands how reimbursements are are, are fully going to work yet so I think in the short term that we need to let the dust settle and see see where that is you've seen all the variations from the swings of People saying they needed 40,000 ventilators, and I mean, it, it's a, it's an emotional discussion. You you have to be able to use data, and I really believe that it's the old phrase: if you torture the numbers enough, they they'll tell you the story. Uh, and data w- will set us free. There, you know, we have to be able to prove and try and take emotion out of these discussions and say, look, no, you you don't need that equipment. You don't need. 200 infusion pumps you don't need this many ventilators I you might need access to them and I think that's going to be the differentiator the difference between having them and having access to equipment having equipment and having access to it and I think they're going to be two entirely different things so I think there's going to be two financial models one is the financial model that best explains what equipment we're using on a day-to-day basis in the normal peaks and flows And how do we then have a second financial model? And who supports that financial model? Because I wonder whether this isn't something that's bigger than just the the hospitals and the ministries themselves. And it's something that that may need to be looked at from a, a support standpoint, from government, from insurance companies, and what have you to say. Look, this is something we need to be prepared for a pandemic and or a high peak situation. And there's two separate financial models.
0: So, what can hospitals and health systems do to drive that narrative then?
3: You've got to be able to use the data to be able to say, I don't need this equipment and use the data to take emotion out of it. And it's a very, very tough discussion. I'm not underestimating the challenge there at all. There's the war on talent. You've got to make sure that you're attracting the best and brightest and technology plays a part with that. But at the end of the day, it is a big expense. So I think the way they can drive the narrative in the short term is have a desire and a hunger and a thirst for the information that will allow them to make fact-based decisions and, where possible, take as much emotion as you can out of it. I think that will go a long way. In the long term, and the medium term, I would say, look, we, we need to work with the necessary parties here and come together, not as an individual ministry. I'll be honest, even if you're working with big ministries, It's hard for those to be able to say, well, let's move this piece of equipment here and let's move this piece of equipment there. That's a challenging discussion even of itself. For the reasons that I mentioned earlier, you know, we want access to that equipment. Uh, Hospitals by their very nature are hoarders. And and I understand why. To try and be able to take that concept, be out of a a hospital network to a a state level or a a national level is going to require a bigger discussion. But I think with that sort of forward thinking and that sort of collaboration, and I you know, I can't decide whether it's state or federal that, that this works, but if you look at the way this pandemic worked, it was pretty much state-driven, although there was a desire for, for federal oversight, but I'm not sure how effective everybody would, would say that's been. And I realise lots of ministries and um, healthcare networks cross state boundaries. But if there was a sort of a desire and of some sort of way that some of these bigger hospital networks, and I, I realise this as well, there's going to be a difference between the hospital networks and the rural hospitals, but there has to be a way to come together and say, okay, in our state, if there was a panic or in this region, how do we come to and say, this is what we will need, and this is what we have to have access to? And between affected parties, be it state, federal, how do we come up with a proposal that allows us to take advantage of that? Because I personally don't believe... All of these associated costs should be borne by the hospital themselves. I, I just don't. Insurance companies, reimbursement, Medicare, Medicaid, federal government, state government, they've all got a vested interest in this. I don't believe this is the hospitals to solve themselves. So I think they have to, in order to take advantage of that, there's got to be a cohesive plan. Otherwise, somebody will come up with the solution for you. And I think being parochial and addressing it as each individual customer may not give the best option. Because ultimately, once you do find a solution, I'm waffling a lot here, but once you do find a solution, the the next question becomes logistics. How do you make sure that then you can take that equipment, make sure it's fit for purpose and get it where I need to get it to when I need it? That, I think, is is an economy of scale. And you'll achieve more with more than you would with less and, and a more individual parochial view. I think they need to, to work with people that can come up with this. It's going to be logistics, it's going to be access, and it's going to be utilisation, and how are you taking the existing data and what we've just seen with the pandemic to be able to say, here's what we think we will need. I, I, I mean, I'm talking about clinical assets here. I could just as easily talk about space. I think if you look at many of the um, city hospitals and inner city hospitals, the space that's, that's being used there, I've seen hospitals myself where hospitals are shuttering down floors and not using them. Well, okay. What does that mean when you need them for a pandemic? I mean, look at what happened with New York and the ships coming in. You know, again, it's it's all going to be what do we do for future crises? And clinical assets and clinical equipment is just one part of that.
0: This segment was sponsored by Trimedics, as the largest independent technology-enabled clinical asset management company in the United States. Trimedics provides strategic planning and management of clinical assets to drive operational cost savings, free up capital for new strategic initiatives, and deliver improved risk management and cyber protection. Learn how Trimedics is driving results at trimedics.com/results. That's t-r-i-m-e-d-x.com/results. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our director of content strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Big thanks to our sponsor this week, TriMedics. I also want to thank everyone who has reached out over the past few months. It's been great hearing about what you've been working on and, frankly, great connecting with people who don't live in my house with me. I'd love to hear from more of you. You can look for us on social media or email us at podcast at Hello and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance.
6: I'm Nora Grotto.